This committee will come to order. As we gather today, the war in Ukraine is at an inflection point. In the face of Ukraine's impressive counteroffensive to reclaim its rightful territory, Putin is desperate, forcing unwilling men across Russia to join an illegal and increasingly unpopular war. Buying rockets from North Korea, drones from Iran, staging sham referendums, having people vote <laughs> but forced at the point of a gun. So phony that even governments friendly to Moscow have said they won't recognize them. Make no mistake, Ukraine continues to face a daily nightmare of shelling, of pulling neighbors and countrymen out of mass graves, of families torn apart and children going to school in basements, of fighting for their very existence. But seven months into this war, Putin is not where he wanted to be, and that's thanks to the bravery of the Ukrainian people, to more than $15 billion in weapons from the United States, and a strong international coalition. But it is also due to the enormous effort to isolate Russia from international commerce and the international financial system, to strip Russia of revenues, reserves, and access to global markets. So Ambassador O'Brien, Assistant Secretary Rosenberg, I want to take a moment to commend the Herculean effort that the Biden administration has led to impose unprecedented sanctions on Russia in response to its invasion. Since February 24th of 2022, the U.S. has deployed a sanctions regime that would have been unimaginable a year ago. And of course, that includes not just you, but the hundreds of dedicated personnel at State and Treasury who worked around the clock to prepare sanctions even before the invasion began. Nearly 40 countries have imposed economic costs on Russia for this war. The democratic world has effectively decoupled from Russia, a massive economic and logistical achievement in the age of global commerce. And thanks to our relentless diplomacy, the UK, the EU, Australia, Japan, and South Korea joined the United States in sanctioning Russian financial institutions, including removing seven of Russia's largest banks from the SWIFT payment system, a move that I championed. Today, more than 1,000 Russians have their assets frozen abroad. More than 1,000 companies have ended operations or withdrawn from Russia. But this is not just about seizing glitzy yachts or forcing oligarchs to unload their Swiss chalets and their British soccer teams. It's about silencing the guns of Putin's military. It's about ending the destruction of homes and hospitals, farms, and schools. It's about halting the mass killing of Ukrainians fighting for their homeland. It's about ensuring that the dream of an independent, free, thriving Ukraine remains alive. So just as we must keep up our support of arms and weapons, so too must we keep up the pressure of economic sanctions. Today I'd like to focus on what comes next and also highlight five areas that I think we need to focus on in order to keep the pressure up. First are our sanctions having the desired effect. We impose sanctions not to punish, but to constrain and ultimately change behavior. Have the sanctions changed Putin's calculus at all? And if not now, perhaps in the coming months. I'd like to hear a clear assessment on how current and planned measures will further strain the Russian system in the coming months and how that might change Kremlin behavior. Then energy. The recently announced price cap on Russian oil is a welcome and creative proposal to deprive Russia of revenue. But how will China and India respond? Will they purchase below the cap? or continue to keep Russia's exports afloat. 
And thirdly, we need to look at the gaps in our sanctions and where tighter alignment would make existing sanctions more effective. Fourth, what can we do to improve enforcement? And this is not only for Putin, but for those enabling him, evading sanctions and feeding his war machine. And finally, I want to hear about our diplomatic efforts, which will be critical in the coming months. Our rigorous diplomacy has made the difference in ensuring that we have not just a united coalition, but one that is willing to act. As we head into winter, Putin is hoping to test our coalition. How do we keep Europe together as energy needs become more pressing and fatigue sets in? We will not only have to maintain our unity, but our willingness to keep meeting the multiple urgent needs facing Ukraine. This is a battle that cannot be won with weapons alone, or diplomacy alone, or sanctions alone. Each of these tools must be used to maximum effort and in coordination. I look forward to hearing from you today how we continue to make this war as costly for Russia that we are seeking to achieve in the coming months, and how we continue to keep the pressure on Putin so that we can give the Ukrainians the best chance to fight for their lives, their livelihood, and their country. With that, let me turn to the ranking member for his comments. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, you and I share the same uh, objectives and goals, and this uh, today is an important hearing uh, as we look at a significant aspect of the Russian conflict, and that being the uh, attempt using uh, financial matters to change the conduct, as, uh, as you, Mr. Chairman, have, uh, have pointed out. And I think it's important that we do focus on what's coming next. We should look at where we've been, though, and I'm, uh, with all due respect, uh, less enamored with uh, what, uh, what has been done. And uh, I, I'll talk about that for a little bit, but I agree that we need to focus uh, uh, together on where we go from here. Uh, on February 24th, of course, Russia initiated its premeditated, brutal, and illegal invasion of Ukraine. Not surprisingly, the Ukrainians pushed back, as any country would, and the result, uh, of course, is the, uh, the war that's been going on now for months. In the months since, the United States and our allies have imposed thousands of sanctions on Russia, its leadership, its companies, and properties with the dual goals of both punishing Russia for its actions and crippling the Russian economy to force its military out of Ukraine. Despite the announcement of sanctions, Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues, and Putin is doubling down by mobilizing hundreds of thousands of men and calling these uh, sham referendums uh, in the occupied regions. Uh, I think uh, Putin uh, uh, obviously gets uh, very little advice from anywhere, uh, he treats us, uh, the world like they're fools, as if uh, somehow holding these sham referendums, whereas the chairman pointed out, soldiers went uh, with guns and forced people to vote uh, uh, in favor of the referendum. Uh, this sort of thing makes absolutely no difference and will not change the reality in the world. Uh, I traveled to Ukraine and saw firsthand the devastation Russia's war has caused, including acts of terrorism and genocide against Ukrainian people, acts that have not been stopped by our sanctions. All of these actions are worthy of sanctions. Well, sanctions have had some success, including export controls, it requires sustained commitment and a greater willingness to close loopholes, aggressively target sanctions evasion, and periodically update sanctions guidance in order for these actions to have long-term impact on Russia. We should never return to business as usual, but sadly, that seems to be what's happening. For example, in June, the administration announced sanctions on Rosti, which the which the Treasury Department referred to as the foundation of Russia's defense industrial base. Yet one of the companies under the Rosti umbrella will send dozens of employees 
to, to the United States in two weeks for a major international conference. Now, this doesn't sound like a company that's being pressured by sanctions. You have actual people from the uh, Russian military-industrial complex going to travel here to participate in an international conference, which supposedly will better uh, their uh, uh, industry. The administration talks about imposing costs on the Russian defense sector, but the continued presence of Russian defense firms in sectors of our economy speaks for itself. This is just one example of glaring gaps across the uh, sanctions regime. This is especially true regarding Russia's energy exports. Gaps have enabled Russia to weaponize energy supplies to Europe and generate substantial, very substantial revenues to keep Russia afloat. As Assistant Secretary Rosenberg stated last week, Russia is enjoying windfall energy profits. Indeed, Russia has made over $160 billion in energy profits alone since this war began. The administration has consistently extended the general license regarding nearly all energy-related transactions with major Russian banks giving them relief from the sanctions. It's no wonder uh, why Russian energy revenues are up and the ruble has stabilized. Likewise, this summer, the, uh, the administration pressured Canada to waive its own sanctions on Russia by forcing it to provide turbines to Russia to repair the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline. Meanwhile, sanctions on Nord Stream 2 are still not permanent, and Russian propaganda is already calling for it to be complete, completed so Russia can help Europe solve its energy crisis this winter. Laughable. Uh, the truth is, the United States was the largest producer of oil and gas three years ago at the end of the last administration and the start of the new administration. Most Americans don't realize that at that moment, we were the largest producer of crude oil in the world, surpassing all others doing so. American companies with American workers using American resources have the capability to solve our domestic energy needs and at the same time help our European allies solve their energy crisis. Instead, the administration talks about getting gas from other Middle Eastern countries and is still trying to open access to Iranian oil, which would also allow Russia to launder its oil uh, through Iran to international markets, circumventing the administration's purported sanctions. And at the same time, everyone will recall, on the, mo on the, day, he was, uh, on, uh, the, the day he was sworn in as President of the United States, uh, the, uh, the, uh, President Biden signed an order stopping uh, the pipeline that would have brought uh, 800,000 barrels a day into the United States. In, the, instead, the administration advocates for oil price cap, but the countries participating have already agreed not to import any more Russian oil, so the price cap isn't do, gonna do any good there, and China and India uh, aren't participating. Also, it lacks any enforcement mechanism as Treasury has already issued general licenses to exempt many of the maritime service providers from the sanctions that were issued. In the absence of enforcement, the sanctions are worthless. In fact, Treasury has issued so many waivers and general licenses that little real impact is felt by U.S. sanctioned policies. Simply disconnecting a couple of small Russian banks from international financial markets is not the robust sanctions uh, policy that we were promised. Meanwhile, public reporting indicates that more than $300 billion uh, in frozen Russian assets e uh, exist worldwide. 
we should be working to confiscate those funds and use Russia's own money to finance the reconstruction of Ukraine and provide critical humanitarian assistance to the Ukrainian people. Finally, as Russia looks to evade Western sanctions and begins to scrounge for the items needed to run its war machine, the opportunities to seize additional Russian assets, interdict illicit shipments, and dry up the Kremlin's revenue streams will grow. I look forward to hearing from our witness to witnesses today, really look forward uh, to hearing how the U.S. intends to expend, expend its sanctions enforcement to deny Russia these openings. We've got to get this right. China is watching and learning from our every move. If we get this wrong, we uh, risk not only billions of dollars in U.S. and allied economic hardships, we will also risk providing Russia with the means to completely insulate itself from future sanctions uh, actions and continue its brutal war in Ukraine. Again, uh, I want to emphasize that I say these things, uh, they are critical, but I'm much more important in looking forward. We can do better. I really believe we can do better. And to the witnesses, I would say, these matters are in your hands, and I look forward to hearing how we are going to do better. With that, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. With that, we'll start the testimony. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. We'd ask you to summarize them in about five minutes or so, so the members of the committee can have an opportunity to have a conversation with you. And we'll start with you, Ambassador O'Brien. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Risch and all the members of the committee. Russia should and will emerge from this war defeated and weakened. The sanctions policy we're implementing tries to do, achieve three goals at the same time. One, deprive Russia of the resources for its wars. Two, reduce our partners' reliance on Russia and thus increasing our leverage. And three, keep global markets open, especially for the global south, and that's critical for sustaining the war effort. Now, I'll make four points. One, the sanctions deny Russia's resources. And Ranking Member Risch, I frankly disagree with the statement that there's no impact. In fact, I think the impact we are having is a great roadmap toward the greater success we're going to have in the future. And I, I just want to call attention to two elements. First, due to export controls and targeted financial sanctions, Russia cannot buy the critical elements it needs for its war, no matter how much cash sit in the Central Bank of Russia. So we see real shortages in crucial categories, artificial intelligence, optics, ke uh, certain chemicals, advanced materials, semiconductors, chips. So you see Russian military equipment being replaced with commercial grade and old technology. And that's the direct result of the policies that, that we have put in place. And there will be more of that. As the Russians seek to evade, we go after their evasion networks. We provide technical help to the countries that need it and that are interested in retaining their access to our markets. We also have made very clear, those who provide material support for Russian sanctions evasion are themselves subject to sanction. And we see this having an enormous impact in Russia's ability to replace the technology. But we know Russia will keep trying. So we watch as their tanks and cruise missiles can't be replaced, and we know they will try to buy uh, other equipment. When they look to use commercial equipment, it's often older equipment. So in a way, this is a race back in time. We've cut them off from today's technology, and they are using older and older technology. It's like a Huey Lewis battle and sanctions. Um, and we'll keep going after them as long as is necessary. 
The second piece is about the broader macroeconomic picture, and I'm sure uh, Assistant Secretary Rosenberg will have more to say about this. Russia's economy is going to shrink between 4 to 6 percent this year, 2 to 4 percent next year. It's basically heading toward a cliff. Um, over the next few years, it will have fewer and fewer resources to do the things that it needs to do. It won't be able to spend on people, weapons, procurement, research, and production. We estimate, so half of its sovereign assets, as you mentioned, Ranking Member Rich, they're blocked outside Russia. About 25% of its sovereign wealth fund has been depleted this year in trying to subsidize activities. And they've mentioned already it set forth 10% federal budget cuts in the non-military budget for 2023. That's the sign of a country suffering under economic distress. And I think that's a direct result of the sanctions we've put in place. On this trend, our latest estimates are we think Russia's economy by 2030 will be 20% smaller than it would be if we didn't have sanctions. That's impact. Now, we can build from that and do more. But the critical piece that we can't measure is the friction and uncertainty that we've introduced into Russian systems. Russia has to buy equipment from unfamiliar vendors through new channels at prices it can't set and through constantly shifting ways to try to bring equipment into the country. That makes every transaction incredibly hard. So friction and uncertainty are the special sauce that fatigue workers and lead to mistakes, exhaustion, and finally depletion. They're just as hard to predict as the morale of soldiers are on the battlefield, but it's just as real a factor in the way that sanctions work. Second thing, we're delegitimizing Russia's imperial project. We've designated hundreds of people who are involved in annexation, the sham referenda election results announced, the um, quizzling authorities, the atrocities being committed in Ukraine. That means the world can't look away from the violence and criminality inherent in this war. And if they can't look away, they're not going to walk away from Ukraine. Third point, we're fundamentally changing Russia's role in the global economy. Russia provides commodities. They're critical for allowing people around the world to survive. So we have that happen. But Russia's not involved in high-tech, high-value sectors of the economy, such as research, IT, finance. That's a real change from the way Russia thought of itself a few years ago. Fourth, we're mitigating the effect of the war on the global south. And if I may, just for a minute here, because I know it's important to some members of the committee, the, when Russia invaded, Ukraine uh, Ukraine's grain exports stopped. Before the war, 25 of the poorest countries in the world depended on Russia and Ukraine for more than half of their food. Russia temporarily suspended its exports. Ukraine couldn't export. So for two months, tens of millions of people had no access to the food they normally would buy. Over the last few months, with help from the EU, and, um, and the UN, we've managed to get more than 10 million tons of Ukrainian grain to market. We've also made clear that Russian grain can flow, and it's moving at about pre-war levels. That's feeding hundreds of millions of people. It's allowing the global south to stand with us while we stand with the brave people of Ukraine. So in conclusion, I'll say sanctions are just one tool in an all-of-government, every-tool uh, approach. They can't win the war by themselves. The courage and ingenuity of the Ukrainian people are going to do that. But what sanctions can do is make it impossible for Russia to take care of its people and pay for its wars at the same time. 
They can let Russia's soldiers know that today is worse than yesterday and tomorrow is going to be still worse. And they'll make it impossible for Putin to carry out the imperial project that he's announced, which was not intended to stop just with Ukraine, but to go on. And those are the conditions for victory. Sanctions can create those and be part of the answer. So I look forward to the questions. Thank you. Assistant Secretary Rosenberg. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Chanking, <clears throat> excuse me, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of this committee for the opportunity to speak with you today about the Department of the Treasury's efforts to hold Russia accountable for its brutal and unjustified further invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. Department of the Treasury is working with administration partners, including my colleagues from the State Department uh, and Ambassador O'Brien, uh, whom I'm joined by today, to implement the U.S. government's holistic response to Putin's war. Since the further invasion began six months ago, we've been advancing President Biden's promise to squeeze Russia's access to finance and technology for strategic sectors of its economy and degrade its industrial capacity for years to come. Earlier this month, for example, we imposed sanctions to further degrade Russia's military, hold perpetrators of this war accountable, and financially isolate Putin. To date, Treasury has sanctioned hundreds of Russian individuals and entities. This includes a majority of Russia's largest financial institutions, key nodes in Russia's military industrial supply chains, and the oligarchs and cronies who help perpetuate Putin's war. The United States has been joined by over 30 countries, collectively representing more than half of the global economy <clears throat> and imposing the largest sanctions regime, regime in modern history. On the other side, Russian propagandists have been aggressively attempting to bury any unfavorable news and push misinformation, saying that sanctions are not working and cause food insecurity. In fact, Russia has crippled Ukraine's farming and export economy and dramatically driven up global energy and grain prices, a topic discussed by my colleague on the panel. U.S. and partner economies' responses to Russia's war have had and will continue to have a significant effect on Russia's ability to fund its war. Russia has been forced to impose draconian capital controls. The IMF expects Russia's economy will contract for at least the next two years, as was also mentioned, which is a sharp reversal from its 4.7% growth in 2021 forecasted. The Russian stock market is about 35% below pre-war levels. Russia is unsustainably burning through its rainy day funds, moving towards fiscal deficit by year's end. Simply put, Russia's economic picture is bleak and is deteriorating. Significantly, these economic constraints are translating into real battlefield difficulties for Russia. Struggling to import industrial goods and technology, Russia has been forced to turn to outdated equipment and approach global pariahs like North Korea and Iran to source materiel. Because Russia is a sizable international economy and a globally important energy producer, imposing financial costs on Russia while mitigating the consequences of Russia's actions has required extraordinary planning coordination, economic analysis, diplomacy, and creative policymaking. We've been keenly focused on Russia's large volume oil exports and uh, its windfall earnings, as was noted, in, high, in this high energy price environment. And at this point, this represents these energy earnings, Russia's primary source of hard currency. Given the global nature of oil markets, elevated energy prices affect us all, including American households that have seen rising prices at the pump and inflationary pressure across our economy. High energy prices hit the poorest the hardest in our country, in your districts, and across the world, unfortunately. Our effort, alongside our international coalition, starting with the G7, to impose a price cap on maritime Russian oil exports is the most viable option to support the security 
and affordability of the global oil supply. The policy involves price cap coalition countries offering services for Russia's maritime transport of oil priced below the cap and refraining from doing so for oil priced above the cap. The majority of providers of some maritime services, such as insurance, payments, and trade finance are located in the G7 countries and EU countries. So there's an overwhelming economic incentive for buyers to purchase under the price cap so that they can engage these premium services. It will be cheaper and less risky to move Russian oil cargoes with these services. We are already seeing this price cap policy work, with Russia forced to negotiate steep discounts for the oil it sells to buyers in Asia. To close, I'd like to express my gratitude for the additional resources that Congress provided in the Ukrainian Supplemental Appropriations Packages, which help us uh, in the administration surge in the policy response to Russia's war and critically to support the people of Ukraine. I'd be very happy to answer your questions, and I look forward to working with you all in the future. Thank you. Well, thank you. We'll start a round of five-minute questions. I'll recognize myself. We um, have had an impact, uh, but it's not quite what we thought. In March, economists estimated a contraction of the Russian economy by 15% in 2022. The International Monetary Fund forecasted in June a more moderate contraction of 6% this year. Uh, and the ruble has appreciated and rallied above its pre-war value. So there's clearly more work to do. Um, it looks like uh, likely that Russia may be behind an effort to sabotage pipelines in the Baltic Sea. Uh, so I'd like to ask you both, what other effective measures are on the table? particularly as we're trying to delicately balance limiting Russian oil revenues but maintaining energy security for Europe. And on the price cap outlook, um, it's a creative approach, but it also requires a delicate balancing act uh, that requires broad buy-in. We see some voices in Europe who seem to be dissenting like in Hungary. What's your current assessment of EU support and what is the outlook for implementing the price cap as we sit here today. Thank you, uh, uh, I, Senator. I'd be happy to begin uh, and then turn to my colleague. Uh, I certainly agree that we must be rigorous, and uh, also to agree with the ranking member in your opening statement too, we must be rigorous in continuing to enforce our sanctions. and. What we can, uh, as well as export controls are with our colleagues across this government, what we can be sure of is that Russia has uh, used tools available to try and shore up the losses that and the economic pain that we have imposed with the sanctions we've brought forward. Uh, nevertheless, uh, further priorities for us when it comes to enforcement and uh, a rigorous approach here include going after the uh, broader networks of facilitators that support Russia's weapons procurement or technology procurement to create and supply those battlefield equipment that uh, it uses on the front line. Uh, furthermore, it is critical that we work with our allies in Europe and beyond to plug some of those gaps to match our sanctions one to another. For example, where we have taken a full blocking action and a partner jurisdiction has taken something, uh, a measure that is not yet full blocking, that's an opportunity for us to continue to work with them, ensuring that they have the appropriate information and mechanism in order to match us there. Those are really effective, uh, effective ways to continue to apply pressure. 
When it comes to uh, the EU's support for the price cap, in the G7 ministerial statement, where G7 members plus the EU pledged their commitment to implement the price cap by policy uh, uh, as of several months from now on December 5th, the EU uh, came forward and made the commitment to do so, and we are working with them constantly, daily, to bring forward the regulations. Uh, in their case, it will be uh, regulation. In ours, it will be through administrative action. The UK will use legislation such that we're in the position to um, implement in the coming months. We're Do you also think you're going to achieve that? That's my question. We have every indication that notwithstanding the difficulty and a range, indeed it's true, a range of positions, some want a tougher policy, some want certain dispensation. Nevertheless, we have every good indication that we are moving forward together toward implementation of this policy. Let me ask you, uh, many of the sanctions that I call for in legislation in January have been implemented. However, some have not. Uh, Gazprom Bank, one of the larger state-owned banks, is subjected to more limited sanctions that predate the invasion. Uh, as we work to use sanctions as part of a comprehensive strategy, what in your mind would be the trigger for full blocking sanctions on Gazprom Bank? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Of course, you're familiar and have noted that we have taken sanctions, full blocking sanctions, on uh, on a variety of Russian banks, including um, imposing um, uh, financial restrictions on all of its 10 largest banks. One key to the price cap policy, which, as you know, seeks to continue to have Russian oil flow, but at lowered prices, at depressed prices, that requires the ability for purchasers to pay for that oil at depressed prices, which means that there must be some controlled channels in order to continue to pay for that. Nevertheless, I will say that we have, in uh, the last several months, moved from um, scenarios where we pose, imposed so-called less than blocking sanctions on a financial institution and then moved to a blocking sanction. So I cannot, in this uh, context, forecast what sanctions the United States uh, or the Treasury may bring forward, but I take note of your point, and we look for every opportunity as appropriate to impose these sanctions. Well, let me, let me drive then the last question here because it follows on. Uh, large banks and funds sanctioned by the United States have not been targeted by the EU including Sherbank, VTB, RDIF. Our allies have targeted a host of Duma members and Belarusian defense officials that we have not sanctioned. The U.S. has sanctioned subsidiaries of sanctioned entities, while our counterparts in Europe and the G7 uh, have not necessarily. So what explains for these existing gaps, and how do we align our regimes more closely? Because we all know that the more comprehensive and multilateral sanctions are, the better off we are in its effect. Senator, to, to speak to this matter, uh, it is a priority that we have uh, complementary and consistent sanctions across jurisdictions, and that's a, something we discuss with colleagues. So you've noted some of the financial institutions that the EU has uh, de-swifted but not imposed full blocking measures on, for example. That's an opportunity for us to encourage our European counterparts to work with them to match ours. I will note, based on the disposition of assets and where, where they are in which jurisdiction, it may be more impactful for Europe to take full blocking actions than for the United States if they don't have assets in our jurisdiction. So while we are moving towards uh, uh, complementarity and consistency across regimes, 
Nevertheless, some of the priority measures for our European colleagues might be ranked ahead of ours if they have a greater opportunity to impede and block assets because they reside in their jurisdictions. Well, I'd like you to give us the list of the, Senator Rish and I often get to meet, uh, as well as other members here, uh, heads of state or foreign ministers from these countries. I'd like to get a list of, of who has not met it so that when we meet them, we can raise the question. Yeah. Senator Rish. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, that's an excellent idea, and we do talk with them, and uh, and we're pulling the wagon together. But it's it's best to have this information where you can where we can encourage. Um, uh, first of all, let, let let there be no mistake about this. We really appreciate uh, what uh, what you're doing. Um, arguably, what you're doing is more important than what's happening on the battlefield. Uh, the the kinds of things that you're doing are the ones that are going to bring Russia to heel. Uh, it 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 seems like. Putin doesn't mind at all throwing his young men into the meat grinder every day and having uh, the thousands and thousands of tens of thousands of casualties that uh, that he he has suffered. Uh, but the financial aspects of this are something that uh, I suspect mean a whole lot more to him uh, than that. So so what you're doing is important. I, I think part of the frustration here, and I, I the, the chairman mentioned it, and that is that that at the at the outset we were led to believe or. At least believed one way or another that we would be more uh, successful in the sanctions. We all know when the sanctions started, uh, there was a, a, a big wave, if you would, of things that happened that were obvious to us. You know, 700 country uh, companies left the country. I mean, that that's significant, uh, obviously, for for Russian life. Um, the ruble, uh, as we all know. Uh, uh, came close to collapse uh, at the beginning, and now it's back up above uh, where it was uh, from when the war started. So these are the kinds of things that make you wonder, well, well wait a second. And, and we all know, and, and you, you've alluded to it, that they have people working full-time every day to avoid the sanctions. I mean, that's, and, and the longer the sanctions are in place, the more ways around it that they're going to find. One example I can give you is the, uh, the price cap that, uh, that we're talking about Obviously, uh, when it comes to maritime services such as insurance, uh, th these are helpful. The problem with that is, is I'm told that every day they're turning to maritime services that are beyond your reach in countries that, like China, that uh, that that aren't subject to this or or uh, that, that we can't get. So, uh, th these are things that I think you need to to uh, uh, continue to focus on, um, and. Uh, uh, lastly, I, I, I think I would stay away from the argument that they're going to older and older technologies. That's a really tough argument to make to the families of the uh, Ukrainian soldiers that were killed by these new Iranian drones that have been brought in. Now, they've got an answer for that. Uh, they're, they're, doing, they're doing okay with the stingers uh, in, in uh, countering the, these newer uh, Iranian uh, drones that have been brought in. Uh, but we need the NASAMs on the battlefield. And, and now that's not your... That's not your concern. Obviously, that's in a, in a different lane, but uh, that's something that we're going to continue to work at. But uh, uh, look, they're, they're, they are doing things uh, somewhat differently. Um, the, the, uh, I, I agree with the, the, with, with the observation that was made that uh, th this whole thing has, uh, what's happened there has uh, totally dissipated uh, uh, Putin's vision, I think, for his imperialism. Th this war is is won already by the Ukrainians. That doesn't mean that the the carnage isn't going to go on. But uh, Putin's idea that he could occupy this country 
and put in a new regime, which was his objective, and then move from there to other countries, this is over. Uh, he will never occupy this country. He, he will go to his grave never having occupied this country. Uh, they will fight with broomsticks uh, in the streets if necessary, and we've all, all of us have had the opportunity to discuss this with the Ukrainians. They're angry, they're hurt, uh, they, they are not going to let uh, uh, Putin succeed no matter what. Unfortunately, that doesn't end the carnage, it, it goes on, but uh, uh, we appreciate what you do. We want to urge you to double, uh, double your efforts in this regard, because you're the ones that can really help bring this thing to an end. So. Briefly, I've only got a few minutes left. Uh, your comments, uh, Ambassador O'Brien. Uh, th thank you, Senator. Um, and I appreciate the comments, mostly on behalf of all the people who've been working on this since before I arrive. Um, I met with some of the visiting Ukrainian soldiers, I think, as you did, and, um, and you visited the front. Uh, they're the real heroes, and they're the ones making the difference. Uh, we are providing them with the weapons and technology. I know there'll be a briefing tomorrow by some DOD and state reps to talk about that um, more. We do feel that the export controls and the sanctions are keeping Russian weapons off. We see their tactics adjust to conserve some of their more advanced weaponry, and that's a clear sign that they can't get more. Now, um, in that regard, I'd appreciate, um, you, you mentioned some uh, delegation of visiting Rostec executives. I'd love it if you'd provide us that information. Will do. Um, and, and we'll work together, and I appreciate the offer to help us as we speak with our, our allies. A couple of points on how we coordinate and, and what's happening. To some extent, the divergence is also breadth of coverage, and then we do have to make sure that even if we, we each hit different targets at different times, we then converge. I think you'll see some, some convergence um, relatively soon. Um, but in terms of what comes next, there will be more packages. We are working on more sanctions. Our European colleagues have said they will continue. Um, President von der Leyen in her State of the EU speech last week said the sanctions are here to stay and they're working with us on additional uh, packages. So we'll keep coordinating. Now, what are the areas we'll look at? Where everything is on the table. We will work in the financial sector because they have very skilled uh, professionals who are working to move functions from the banks we have designated to others. And so we'll follow them down the chain, try to anticipate where they're moving. They have, um, we'll look a lot in high tech, especially for energy exploitation and anything that might be dual use for the military. Um, as well as continuing to work on the human rights violators and the soft power that Russia tries to, to deploy through its disinformation and other areas. So we can go into some more detail on that, but I'm very happy to have any advice or suggestions that you or other members of the committee have. And a final note, you mentioned the Iranian drones, and of course we, we designated uh, um, some of those involved in that, that transaction. But this goes to the strength of the coalition moving forward. We have more than three dozen countries, either formally or informally, working with us on export controls, run largely by Department of Commerce and by some of my colleagues at the State Department. We have about the same number of countries that are implementing strong financial sanctions. It's most of the global economy. Still big outliers, as you pointed out, and we need to work on those. Russia is scrounging some help from the DPRK, Iran, maybe Belarus. Not a lot showing up. And I think that goes to show you the, the strength of the abhorrence 
that the international community feel toward what, what Russia's doing. And that is led by President Biden and others. And I, I, I know you guys, you are really helping in, in pushing this effort, but let's never forget the strength of the group that we're going for. Thank you. With. Again, thanks Sen for your efforts. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to both of you for being here. I, I think the frustration that you're hearing from us was um, very accurately described by both uh, Chairman Menendez and Ranking Member Risch, and that is that um, when we were told these were going to be the toughest sanctions ever on a country, and it, they were going to have certain impacts, and we have not seen the full um, impact that was described to us. And so I think we're anxious to know what more we can do, what more the administration can do to make these sanctions even tougher, to make it even harder for Russia to operate. And one of the things you said, uh, Secretary Rosenberg, was the fact that there are um, European colleagues who may be better positioned for certain banks or certain efforts because of where they're located. I would just point out, as I know you're aware, that it's um, often if the United States takes a lead, that helps prompt our allies, our European colleagues, to follow that. So I hope we are continuing to think about that. Um, and I wonder if you could, you talked about the additional ways that we need to apply pressure. I wonder if you could talk about what the plan is to do that um, to the extent that you can publicly. And then I wanted to follow up on the energy issue because as Senator Menendez mentioned and the news this morning was about the sabotage of the pipeline, maybe you could start with this, um, Ambassador O'Brien, that appears the suggestion is that it's Russia sabotaging the gas pipeline. Do you have, do we have any idea what the impact of that's going to be and how, how that's being mitigated? Um, thank you, Senator. The, uh, it's apparently sabotage. The Danes and others are going to investigate. We have to see the result of the investigation. They'll mitigate the environmental damage. Neither pipeline's delivering all that much energy at the moment, so it won't affect that, but it, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to evaluate the status going forward. And we've, we've promised support for the European efforts to look into what's, what's happening. And what are the other ways that we're hoping to apply pressure, increase the impact of the sanctions for both of you, really, as we think about going forward? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, to go back to where you began your comments, uh, this, this is the largest sanctions program that the United States has undertaken, along with other uh, counterparts in the scope and scale, the size of institutions, the size of the economy, uh, the international coalition that has brought this forward. And I appreciate the point you're making that uh, Russia, what we are seeing in the, um, uh, the drift back up of some of the economic indicators, that is, that's the, what that, that is what it looks like when Russia has had to burn through its fiscal buffers in order to uh, create a veil of, uh, of management or to seek to try and uh, telegraph stability here. The draconian capital controls that they've put in place, they've spent over $100 billion in fiscal stimulus this year. And I, I appreciate that, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but my question is really more, what are we doing to respond to that? 
uh, recognizing that Russia is taking these measures to try and keep their economy as stable as possible and to reassure their public, what are we doing to make sure they're not successful at that? I think it's critical to take the long to take the long view here and play a long game. What they're doing is unsustainable. So we must match the intensity of our prior efforts and continue on with this. And that means applying pressure uh, with our own additional sanctions and working with colleagues uh, in other jurisdictions to match ours. You made a very good point about leading by example when it comes to implementation of sanctions. The same is true when it comes to enforcement. And when the United States takes enforcement actions, that is also a critical leadership function, not just on substance, but also in form and the methodology of how to go about bringing enforcement actions that our partners can and will follow the United States in in order to apply this pressure. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the point about the long game. The frustration is, as we know, that while we're playing the long game, Ukrainians are dying. And so anything we can do to speed up these efforts, I think, are important. Um, Ambassador O'Brien, a final question, because I'm almost out of time. What are we doing to get countries like India, who ought to be all in here um, in terms of being willing to join this effort against Russia, what are we doing to try and get them to work with us uh, more closely. Thank you, Senator. The, um, we work intensively with all the key governments, including India. India obviously has a long-term special relationship with Russia. This is a, a time for India to reconsider where it's positioning itself geopolitically. So it's a part of an all-of-government approach with them. Indian companies understand that their access to the global financial system depends upon them complying with our sanctions. Um, and, and we've made that point very clear. Uh, Deputy Secretary Arayama was just in India. Um, you were on that trip? No. Um, and and we, so we were working at a high level consistently with India with other countries. And it just as one example of how this constantly evolves, um, Turkey had uh, begun accepting an alternative Russian payment system. Uh, this is very troubling, and I think largely uh, through a number of communications, both privately and, and more publicly, particularly by this, the Treasury, uh, we made clear that we were concerned about this. Um, we designated some of the Russian officials involved in the uh, payment system, and now the government has instructed all Turkish banks to back out of it. That's a way in which... Russia is, we're stopping Russia from insulating itself and it exposes them to further um, sanctions and to, to more enforcement. So this happens on an ongoing basis. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and, and I appreciate the work that's being done by uh, our government, the Department of State, in, uh, in putting in place this regime of sanctions. I, I, I must admit that I... Uh, I have the same sense that I'm hearing from uh, both the chairman and the ranking member that we, that we have in our own minds overstated the impact uh, of sanctions. And it, it, it obviously depends on the, on the country you're dealing with. Uh, there are some countries that if we put sanctions on them, they'll put sanctions on us. And, uh, and, and it might be a, 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 an unfair fight uh, in a setting of that nature. Um, and, and so I, I say that in part because um, I'm looking at the at the statistics you provided. You know, their stock market is down 34 percent. Our stock market is down what 24 percent this year. Uh, 
so, you know, uh, it's not the end of the world for Russia if their stock market is down. Uh, the ruble is actually trading higher than it was before the, the war. Um, uh, you note that uh, by 2030, their economy will be 20% smaller. Um, by 2030, that's a long way out. I, I, I wonder how, how much smaller Iran's uh, economy is as a result of the sanctions we've had for a long, crippling sanctions, we call them. Do, do you know what their shrinkage is of their economy over the, I mean, it's, it's, at, least, it's at least 30, it's probably 40 plus percent. And, um, and yet Iran is still there and selling oil and, and, uh, and selling military equipment. Uh, and, and in global markets, uh, if we cut off access to certain technologies that Russia would want to purchase, they can find ways around it. Uh, and particularly if their friends are China and India, those are big countries with lots of technology. Some places, of course, will represent gaps. But I, I, I think that we have to have a, a more clear assessment in, in, in Congress's mind, in our national uh, psyche, as to just what the impact of sanctions can do. Um, and and I, I, I know many of my friends think, well, the Chinese better be watching because they're going to see this could happen to them. Well... Really? Just what would be the impact if they decided not to let us buy the rare earths and the copper and the cobalt and the lithium that they dominate? Uh, and who would be hurting who the most? So I, I, I guess I, I look for a more um, precise uh, uh, estimate of the impact sanctions will have. Not, not that we then don't do them. Of course we do. Um, but we want to make sure that, that uh, we don't overestimate in our own minds and plan on, on uh, reaction that otherwise would, uh, would not occur. Uh, I, I guess the, the am, I, am I missing this somehow? Is your, am I underestimating this? And I, and I realize we don't have a very clear view of what's happening in Russia. We, we think some things will be happening, but uh, the, the indications so far are it wasn't as crippling as we thought on Russia. And, and I, I wonder whether that teaches us a lesson that should be important to us as we consider the impact of re sanction regimes in the future. And, and Assistant Secretary, you might lead, and, and then uh, let me turn to the Ambassador. Thank you, Senator. I'm happy to address this point. I think you make, uh, there's a couple of things you've said which are essential for us to bear in mind. First, we must be humble, and we cannot rest on our laurels. We must be, take this long game and be rigorous in, our, in how we move forward. What we, what we are seeing in Russia's intensive use, this hundred billion it's spent in fiscal stimulus to try and disguise the true pain of its economy, we must continue to force them to burn through the entirety of the buffers they have in place. It's that motivation which has led us to the price cap policy. The largest source of hard currency that Russia has now is from energy sales. And while we can sever Russia's access to the international financial system with sanctions, and we can impede its ability to earn money in several of its key revenue-generating sectors, it's in energy where we must focus our attention in order to deny Russia that revenue. And without that hard currency, it will not be able to continue to uh, to support its economy and to disguise the cratering economic conditions that are occurring. I, I certainly concur with regard, but, but the reality is if a country has oil, they're going to be able to get money for it. And, and that's, I mean, if we were putting sanctions on a nation that didn't have raw materials and oil, well, those sanctions would be really tough. But with Russia, I mean, we, we can try and do all sorts of things, but if you got oil and you got gas and you got coal and you got gold, you're going to be able to get money. Yeah. Ambassador. Um, 
I think this is really well said, Senator, and it's an issue we struggle with every day. So I agree with you, and particularly being humble about uh, our projections of what will, will happen. Um, I'll get back to you with the point on Iran. I don't have that, That's that right. with me now. It's a good comparison, um, though the, obviously Russia's ambitions under President Putin are very different from Iran's, and so the scale does matter. Um, I agree with the ranking member that the imperial ambition has taken a very serious hit at this point. Now, sanctions are one tool. Um, ben, I just want to, in Russia, I'll emphasize two pieces in addition to what Assistant Secretary Rosenberg mentioned. One of them is the measure for me is not how much do they have, it's what can they buy. And that's why I emphasize the export controls and the restrictions on their ability to finance their major purchases because we see that they can't buy the things they want to use on the battlefield. And this is expanding and we will keep, keep growing. The second is, this is impossible to quantify. As I mentioned, it's like the, the effect of soldiers' morale during a battle. At some point, a system becomes so rickety and improvised that it can't succeed. I mean, you had a great career making businesses more efficient and transparent. And Russia is now a system that's built upon improvisations, lies, and guesses. And that just can't go on for long. But it's impossible to put one number against that. But it is how a sanctions program really has, has an effect. Thank you. Um, Senator, and then the China point, we'll, we can discuss more. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank both of you for, for being here. And I want to applaud the administration's effort uh, with respect to supporting Ukraine and punishing Russia. And Congress, of course, has been an important partner, key partner in that effort. Uh, I think we have about $15 billion as part of the continuing resolution uh, in support of Ukraine. Uh, as you mentioned, Assistant Secretary Rosenberg, in response to uh, Senator Romney, uh, the big sort of hole in our sanctions uh, is the revenue, record revenue and record profits uh, Russia has obtained uh, from the sale of energy, oil and gas. Uh, and I share the concerns that Chairman Menendez raised at the beginning of the hearing uh, regarding holes in proposed sanction regimes coming up with respect to the price cap. So I'd like to drill down a little bit more on it because it's a, a creative idea. And I want to applaud the administration for this price cap idea with the G7. A couple questions as to how you envision that uh, being enacted. Uh, I assume that there will be penalties on entities from participating countries if they don't comply, right? I mean, isn't that right? I mean, you're gonna, if you're, if you're an entity in one of the participating countries and you don't comply, knowingly don't comply with the price cap, there will be penalties, right? Yes, Senator, that's correct. Right, so there, there will be sanctions on those countries. Do you envision those sanctions being applied by each participating country? Yes, they can. They could also be, uh, in here I think you're talking about enforcement actions. I'm talking uh, about enforcement actions. Yes. So yes, uh, they could also be applied by other jurisdictions where there is nevertheless a jurisdictional link. For example, a service provider in an EU country, but that's using dollars. There's two different jurisdictions there, so there's an opportunity for multiple jurisdictions. Right. So in that case, in that example, you're talking about the participating G7 country and the United States when we're talking about dollar-denominated transactions, right? Yes, Senator. Okay. But we have no plan to enforce the price cap on any countries that do not participate 
uh, in the price cap. Isn't that right? To play out an example here in order to answer this question. So if, for example, we have a Southeast Asian country that is purchasing uh, uh, oil not under the price cap and using entirely non-G7 services, there's not a jurisdictional link. I would note that we believe that the powerful economic incentive for them to use services in these jurisdictions and also the risk involved in not using these services will direct in addition to which Russia does not have sufficient services in order to completely backfill all of the barrels that uh, currently go to, that would flow through G7 services. No, I understand. I mean, again, that, that's applying the, the penalty on the servicers that are participating under the G7 framework. It's not a sanction against entities that are not part of that servicing network. And I agree that- Senator, if I, I may. If I if I could, because my time is short, um, this is why you know Senator uh, Toomey and I introduced the secondary sanctions regime because it's our view that if you're talking about a country like China um, and you're talking about a period of time, and you know we have to be in this for the long haul. I know you agree with that. Uh, that there is just a real opportunity uh, if there are no penalties applied to. China, for example, uh, for buying under the price cap, uh, that the whole thing could unravel. So I, I guess if all of this works as you expect, what is the downside of creating penalties not just for servicers and entities in the G7 sort of framework, but beyond that? Senator, we do currently have authorities to name entities with sanctions that compel G7 service providers to violate sanctions. That is to say, there is an opportunity to go after entities outside of the G7 countries if they are violating these measures and in some way have a jurisdictional hook to ours. I understand. I, as I understand what you're saying is if they use coercive measures essentially to say to one of the servicers, if you don't play a game, if you don't participate with us in evading the price cap, you can go after after you, but it, but again, I mean, it does it does leave a, a network, admittedly not a huge network right now, outside the G7 countries uh, that would be free to purchase Russian oil above the price cap. And I just think, especially over time, because markets adjust, can adjust quickly, uh, oil traders can adjust quickly. Over time, that just leaves, I, I think, a big hole in what is, I think, a really good idea and concept. And look, we're working with you and your team um, and happy to continue conversations uh, as we introduce the, the final bill. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. I thank our uh, witnesses for being here today. Uh, the title of the hearing is, is Keeping the Pressures on Russia and Its Enablers. And, and with that in mind, I'm thinking perhaps it's time that uh, the president considers uh, more of an asymmetric approach to isolate Putin from his allies. For example, the Burmese military junta has positioned itself as Putin's arguably most uncritical post-invasion partner in Asia. Uh, I see Moscow has, has readily backed the junta in return, both diplomatically and by arms sales, uh, totaling over $1.7 billion over the last 20 years. 
Has the administration, uh, Mr. O'Brien, has the administration considered imposing targeted sanctions or reinforcement of arms embargoes against the Burmese military? Yes. Oh, okay, very good. What's been the result of, of that reflection and consideration? We, we are looking at the pillars of, I mean, we have sanctioned 70 individuals, 27 institutions. We are working with our regional partners in the, um, to, to target the, the junta and sort of push toward free and fair elections. To, to leverage the ASEAN uh, yes. relationships in and, particular. And, and trying to, as with the Russia sanctions directly, we need to make sure our partners have some options. That increases their leverage. Um, and we're looking at the pillars of support of the regime. We've sanctioned uh, Rostec, as the ranking member noted, and, and that's a major partner in Burma. We'll look to see what more we need to do there as well. Very good. Is, is uh, among the menu of options you've, you, you visited, um, have you looked at um, some of the traditional sanctions or, or trade, me trade measures like uh, revoking access to um, EU trade preference? Uh, that, that might be among the menu of options. What do you think about that one? Um, well, that's not ours, but the, um, I think one of, You're no doubt developing this, these policies in concert with our allies, right? Yes, yeah. and, and I think maybe it would make sense for us to have a conversation in another forum. I don't, I don't want to foreshadow particular actions we may take, but I think we're, we are very focused on the continued threat the junta poses to its own citizens yes. and its relationship with Russia. And we're, we're developing ways that our sanctions can be part of an effective policy. All right. So maybe we can, I'm happy to come up and talk more over the next weeks if you'd like. That would be great. And then I'll look forward to doing that. I, I represent a, a sizable uh, Burmese American population. So that's uh, in part my interest in, in this topic. So. Um, <clears throat> Part of, of, of the engagement um, uh, is, is owed to Beijing's uh, engagement, um, particularly in 2006 when um, uh, Beijing became an active intermediary um, uh, with, with Russia. You'll recall uh, the junta secured Moscow's backing, al allowing for a historic double veto on the Security Council, scrutinizing uh, the, the junta's activities. This all comes despite the regime's uh, historic reluctance and suspicion in dealing with China. Um, in your opinion, what is Beijing's end game in, in supporting this diplomatic relationship? I think the economic relationships run deep. There's a long-time security relationship on the, the border. And so they've, they've got a natural <clears throat> inclination to working together. We're looking at the ways in which our policies might be able to adjust that, um, but that may be a topic for a discussion. Yes, sir. And, and one of the other things I'll just get on record that I'll look forward to exploring with you or your team is, is uh, how some other bigger regional players uh, like China or India uh, might respond to targeted sanctions uh, against the uh, the Burmese. Um, with that, I'll yield back, Mr. Chairman. Uh, okay. <clears throat> so, in the absence of any member presently being here, I have some uh, additional questions, and we'll see if anybody else joins us. 
<clears throat> Ambassador O'Brien, uh, how are, you know, out, out, first of all, outside of Europe, only a, a handful of countries have been willing to impose sanctions. How are we working to broaden the coalition of sanctioned partners working to hold Russia accountable? Um, and beyond the price cap, what are we doing to prevent countries like China and India from taking advantage of their chance to trade and help Russia make up for its losses? Um, thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, the first step is to be ensure that the sanctions are complied with by anyone who touches our system. And I think this was the heart of the exchange between the Assistant Secretary and Senator Van Hollen. We see the private sectors around the globe being very interested in um, continuing their access. So the private sectors in China, India, and elsewhere are very well attuned and aware of what they can and cannot do. And even uh, companies with substantial state ownership are, are aware and um, uh, attuned to what we expect of them. So the coalition, in fact, the sort of a coalition and those running alongside it, in fact, is pretty robust. Um, where there are specific problems, we raise them with those governments. We take uh, appropriate action, sometimes in law enforcement channels um, or other channels, and sometimes through, through sanctions activity. Uh, more generally, broadening the coalition means... But, but excuse me, the China and, and India are both actively engaged uh, in making a variety of purchases from Russia. Yes. I haven't seen any actions against either one of them. Um, well, the actions that we've seen are, are ones that are allowed under the sanctions, which I realize may be your point, but it's not that we're negligent in enforcing the sanctions. It's that the, um, much of the trade is in the kinds of commodities that are important. And I, it, this goes also to keeping the coalition strong because there are many lower and middle income countries around the world that need the global markets to function, and that includes allowing Russian and Ukrainian products to reach them. So trade, say, to Turkey, Turkey re-exports 70% of any wheat and grain it gets from Russia and Ukraine to Africa. So though that number looks like a lot of trade, it actually is a part of keeping the global coalition in a place where we're able to sustain the support for Ukraine. Well, China's certainly not a lower middle income country, right? I think technically, well, I, I, I think China's role in this is very interesting because I think the Chinese have made clear, including publicly, that the war strikes them as, uh, say, not going well. I mean, we've all seen the exchange um, last week or two weeks ago. And I, I think we will continue to work with the Chinese to ensure that they understand where our sanctions um, operate and that that has an effect on the way that they engage with, with Russia. Yeah, you know, I, I, I just have, have a, I'm a big supporter of the U.S.-India relationship, but India is now part of the Quad. You're going to be part of the Quad. You're going to act as part of it. It's not only vis-a-vis -vis China, but beyond that. Kazakhstan is considered by many to be Russia's closest ally, only second to Belarus, yet recent reports regarding the Kazakh government's decision to crack down on loopholes allowing Russia and Belarusian truckers to transport EU cargo across Russia to Kazakhstan suggests that this relationship may be fissuring. Uh, what steps are we taking to seize upon any opportunities to put further pressure on Russia as a result of divisions possibly deepening between them and their Central Asian partners? The, um, 
Yeah, it's a great point. So the Central Asian countries have economies that are largely entwined with Russia. Kazakhstan's access to European markets was largely by way of Russia, both its oil pipeline and its, its agricultural exports. Uh, many of the countries have substantial remittances coming from, from emigres who work in Russia and send the money home. So we're working with them to provide them with options, whether that's physical alternative routes and other ways to develop uh, investment and cash. Um, over la the last week, Secretary Blinken met with the five foreign ministers of the Central Asian countries. We've provided them with guidance on how to implement our sanctions. We followed up with specific concerns. Um, we will be having further conversations with them on precisely what they can, can do. And, and I think we'll see all of those countries that will be happy to have alternatives to the relationship that they had had with Moscow before. So we'll continue to work in that vein. Senator Corden. Uh, thank you very much. Let me thank both of you for your work. Um, and I agree with uh, the chairman and ranking member. Um, we've made a lot of progress, but where we have gaps, where we have the inconsistencies between our European allies and ourselves and, in, and our global partners, we should be looking at ways that we can strengthen the sanctions. So the purpose of the sanctions, as you point out, is to win this war. And you pointed out a lot of ways in which it helps, taking resources away from Russia that could be used for its military, to deal with the inability to deal with its supply chain through the uh, material and equipment that cannot get into Russia. But I, I want to raise an additional point here and that is winning this war is holding Russia accountable, in addition to protecting Ukraine's sovereignty, for the destruction it's caused, and to hold those responsible for the atrocities criminally responsible for their activities. And one of the, the points about individual sanctions, one of the points about putting a spotlight on the people that are committing these atrocities is that there will come a point that those around Mr. Putin and those in the military recognize that their future may be at The Hague and they may wish to try to cleanse themselves from the atrocities being committed. And one of the ways that we make that point very clear is through individual sanctions. And I do appreciate that America, the United States has been strong on the individual sanction front. But as you pointed out, we can do more. We now, the atrocities are continuing. So our spotlight on those committing these atrocities need to be, keep up with, unfortunately, the activities that are occurring through Mr. Putin's direction. So I just really would like to get your assessment as to how we are working with those that recognize accountability must be part of the ultimate victory here. And the way that we use our individual sanctions gives a roadmap to those that will be ultimately responsible for this part of accountability. Mr. Ambassador, you want to start? Or either, either one. Yeah, and thank you, Senator. I mean, you've been a champion on these issues, um, you know, for all my time working in public service, and I appreciate the, the support. The, um, I completely agree with you. I, I think that um, it's necessary to highlight the criminality and the violence that is intrinsic to this imperial campaign. 
So one of the, say, buckets in which our sanctions work is to highlight the atrocities that are being committed. Anything that goes to um, indicating the illegitimacy of the project. So we've sanctioned uh, scores, if not hundreds, of individuals. As we learn, we will sanction more. Um, as we learn more about the institutions that are part of this, we will continue to, to designate those. So any Russian-backed institution established in the uh, occupied areas um, is uh, a target for designation and very likely to be so. And that's a part of a policy of for the other work that others are doing. And I know you know it well, Ambassador Van Skak and others are, are working to support investigations, the documentation of the atrocities, and making clear that, as you say, for many of these people, their future may well be in The Hague. Secretary Rosenberg, a lot of times there is the pressure on the economic sanction front and the individual sanction front may not have the same degree of visibility or attention. So assure me that's not the case in your work. Thank you, for, Senator, for the opportunity to do so. There's two points that I want to make uh, that complement what my colleague, uh, Ambassador O'Brien, has just said. Individual sanctions on um, ultra-high net worth individuals in particular are particularly critical in this sanctions regime. They do a number of things. So first, they identify, it sends a powerful message, as you've indicated, and it also um, will lock up the assets of these individuals and their holdings uh, who benefit from their position with proximity to President Putin or who otherwise support and facilitate his activities and decision-making. The so-called repo task force, the Russian elite proxies and oligarchs task force, which is the uh, Treasury Department and Justice uh, Department here in the United States and their counterparts in the G7 countries have worked together to enforce these ultra-high net worth or oligarch sanctions, individual sanctions, across our jurisdictions and have locked up frozen over $30 billion related to these individuals. That is material for our purposes here. And furthermore, you've noted the criminality associated with some of these individuals. To the extent that that is established, then we have the opportunity not just to freeze these assets, but then forfeit them, including for purposes of restitution for the Ukrainian people, which is a unique opportunity of great significance for this program, given the Ukrainian uh, people that we all seek to uh, support and address in this broader sanctions program. And that's an area that I'm sure we're going to put more attention to as we get later to the restitution issues in Ukraine itself. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you. Uh, I have one final question for you, Ambassador O'Brien, and uh, it was, uh, since we have you here, we're obviously devoting extensive resources to Russia sanctions, as we should. Uh, but I wonder whether this comes at the expense of our ability to respond effectively in other regions. For example, despite horrific conflict in Ethiopia, where fighting has killed an estimated half a million people in Tigray alone, the administration has not sanctioned any Ethiopians for gross violations of human rights. Eritreans, but none Ethiopians. Clearly, there are Ethiopians who have been part of gross violations of human rights. Likewise, the administration has not sanctioned any senior security force officials in Sudan for the killing of more than 100 pro-democracy protesters since the October 2021 coup, or Sudanese known to be working with the Wagner Group to export Sudanese gold to Russia. So what needs to happen to ensure a proactive approach in these areas? 
Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, um, and your attention to these areas is, I very much appreciate. I don't want to foreshadow what we're doing. Um, I'd love to maybe come and we could have a discussion with some of my colleagues from the policy side. Part of the mandate that this committee shaped for my office is to ensure that sanctions are properly used as part of an effective policy. So I've spoken with Ambassador Hammer, and we're very focused also on the issues, uh, and that's around the Horn and Ethiopia, Eritrea. But we're also very focused on the issues across the Sahel and from Sudan across to, to West Africa. Um, and I, I think in that regard, it'd be great to have a conversation about where we see things moving. The influence of Russia um, is something that, well, how to put this, um, we're well aware of Wagner operations and Mr. Prigozhin advertising himself across the region. And that makes it very um, a very high priority target. In addition, I think Sudan and the gold trade and other thing, elements are very important to us. So maybe we can come and have a conversation um, in another, another venue for that. Well, I'd, I'd be happy to have a conversation in another venue. But let me just say, uh, I think one of our challenges in our sanctions policy, more broadly defined, is if you're committing human rights violations, as clearly it is happening in Tigray and in Ethiopia, if you're committing human rights violations in uh, Sudan, and for that fact in other places of the world, and yet we don't sanction them when we have full knowledge of it, then what is the global message? What is the global message to other nefarious and authoritarian actors in the world about, well, they pick and choose when they want to do it. And I understand broader policy constructs um, and sanctions within that context, but I also think uh, there is a gnawing question uh, for those of us who are big advocates for human rights and democracy about the lack of our sanction policy when it is so clear and obvious uh, that there are parties here that are clearly have uh, uh, blood on their hands. And yet, and, and it's not that we don't know who they are, we do, uh, and we don't pursue them. I think that's a problematic set of circumstances uh, uh, as, as we deal in a broader policy construct, but certainly as it relates to these countries, because I have a feeling that as it relates particularly to Ethiopia, uh, some of your colleagues have an aspiration but it is not an aspiration that's being realized. In the interim, half a million people have been killed. So how long do you wait before the aspiration is realized until you use one of your tools of peaceful diplomacy? We only have a handful of them. Uh, and so uh, at the end of the day, I, uh, I welcome and I will have my staff reach out to you and you bring in whoever you want and in any setting you want. But I want to have a serious conversation about why we don't see action in some of these things. And someone's going to have to make the case to me uh, that, in fact, it is better for our ultimate goals and to save the lives of people that we not pursue any sanctions than that we do. Um, so I'm looking, looking forward to that. I, I appreciate the attention, and I agree with you. I think that's a... a Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Now, uh, I'm told Senator Kane is on his way, but I don't know how much longer uh, we can keep this open and waiting for colleagues. So if he's coming, if he's here, he's here. And if he's not, do we have any sense?
is it a is it a is it a Spanish minute or is it a regular minute? And I can say that as someone who's Hispanic, because if it's a Spanish minute, it's probably a little longer. We've been told he's in the building. He's in the building. All right. Um, well, I wasn't going to belabor the point, but uh, instead of just letting, sitting with uh, um, Do we have, you work with your colleagues, Ambassador, obviously, in the promotion of these sanctions. There are bilateral relationships that are challenging. Um, what about Orban and Hungary? He seems to be one of the roadblocks as we deal to cohesion over EU sanctions. We've made clear our support for the position of 26 of the 27. Um, obviously, Hungary has its own difficulties right now with the European institutions. We strongly support the emphasis on the rule of law in Hungary. Um, and all, uh, we're very concerned about the prospect of Russian influence operating through Hungary and are calling attention to that in all the channels that that we can find. I want to just, Senator, just as a minor point, one piece that the EU did, uh, a, a decision made in July, was to align all of the sanctions programs so that they all roll over at once. And this makes it very difficult for one country to stand up and block everything, as opposed to before when they could kind of pick one small item and try to stand up. And I think that's part of a strategy of focusing attention where it needs to be and, and making it easier for us then to bring whatever tools we have to bear. So you don't think he'll be an impediment to the, to the, the necessary unity of the EU to enforce its sanctions? I, I'm not going to predict. I think that the, that the, um, the gravity in this situation runs toward maintaining the coalition and, and keeping everything moving well. Right. Senator Kane, I have been uh, uh, filibustering here for you. So although I've gotten very precious information in doing so, so you're recognized. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chair and Ranking Member Rish, and thanks to the witnesses. And I'm not going to ask you to repeat questions that I'm sure my colleagues have asked. But one of the things that I'm interested in is, and I know questions have been asked about European solidarity and how that is going to hang together as we get into winter with energy challenges. If you, if you could talk about the potential role of the current or potential role of the OSCE. We, you know, we often talk about NATO, and that's a flashpoint with Russia, but the OSCE is the broader organization, as you know, that includes many European nations that are not members of NATO, including Russia. Um, and it struck me that during the last administration, I started to notice maybe more of a little bit more activity in the OSCE. Um, so share with me, is there uh, value that that institution is bringing or can bring uh, to this uh, very, very difficult problem? Thank you. Thank you, Senator. The OSCE, of course, is the institution that was formed around the values of the West. And in this uh, conflict, the, it's allowed us to clarify what it takes to be a member of, of the rule-abiding rule group. So the OSCE has a set of institutions and standards that are very important as we move forward. 
I know the secretary is a visit is attending an OSCE ministerial and democratic elections in the next week. That will be a key place to highlight some of the um, important steps governments can take to reinforce the rule of law, for having free and fair elections, and taking steps against corruption. That um, is very important, particularly through uh, Central Asia. Um, I was just meeting yesterday with a, a visiting minister, um, and this was one of the highlight, uh, one of the focal areas of the the meeting. And you're seeing the OSCE as a place in which we we refine the standards and help one another meet them. So that's one particular role. It's peace and security uh, role is something maybe we can come back and brief you on more. Obviously, with Russia there, it becomes a little more difficult. But the the role in the rule of law and democratic standards is a vitally important one. Secretary Rosenberg, I want to ask you, and I, I imagine you have been asked this, but if I if I could, what what grade would you give to our allies in terms of you know rigorously complying with sanctions, or how much how much leakage is there around the the sanctions? And I know it varies country to country, but if you could kind of give me a more general answer first, and then if there if there are things that we can do to improve. Um, the bite of the sanctions and reduce leakage or in running around the sanctions, what should we do? Thank you, Senator, for the question. We work extremely closely with our colleagues uh, in Europe to, and elsewhere to uh, bring forward sanctions, uh, sharing information in order to construct the packages, uh, the technical um, uh, work of implementing them, uh, enforcing them, sharing information for enforcement actions that we can take in our jurisdiction or they can take in theirs. The Sanctions that we have brought forward with respect to Russia are unprecedented in their scope and scale and the number of international partners involved, in addition to those European partners with whom we work, with which we work closely. Uh, also partners in East Asia. This is the first time that Singapore, for example, has brought forward the kind of sanctions program uh, uh, here on an individual country outside of a UN framework. The same is true for a number of East Asian partners. Uh, the information exchange that we have all had, including with these Asian allies, has been truly unprecedented. And furthermore, there's a development of a technical, the technical implementation here is is fresh in this experience here. The information sharing, downgrading of information, in order to construct these packages and to enforce them, and also the mechanisms for things like licensing, uh, guidance. Uh, this is brand new territory for many of our allies, and they've worked at lightning speed to implement it. It's truly a feat and sets us up for other shared challenges that we may encounter in the future. Thank you for that. I'll just conclude and say that my colleagues know I don't, I don't mind criticizing administrations that are Democratic or Republican. Um, if, if things are going wrong, and not that everything with respect to the U.S. response in Ukraine has gone right or perfectly, but you confronted, the administration confronted a very, very difficult challenge, which is European nations, including Ukraine, did not think there would be an invasion. We believed there would be. And so with the same facts, we had very different predictions about what would happen. And I think what the administration did, given that challenge, was really uh, adroit in pre-negotiating a set of consequences that would snap into place if our prediction turned out to be right and our allies were wrong. We wanted them to be right and us to be wrong, but if we were right and they were wrong, the way the administration put consequences in place in advance, I, I think I, I just give that very, very high marks, and I appreciate your role in that. And, that, and with that, Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you. Uh, 
Senator Kane, our, my, my filibustering for you has allowed two of our other colleagues to make it here on time before the end of the hearing. So Senator Portman is next. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As you know, I was here earlier, and I'm sorry I had to step out for a markup, but I really appreciate your holding this hearing, uh, you and Senator Risch, and your vigilance in ensuring that uh, we can put the squeeze on Russia, because that's all that's going to get them to the table. I will say earlier, uh, uh, there was discussion uh, by Mr. O'Brien about the fact that we need to sh demonstrate the, uh, you said, the violence and criminality going on in Ukraine. Uh, the atrocities are, are clear. I was in Bucha a month ago, um, uh, saw where the mass graves are. Uh, Izum, we learned about uh, last week, which is this part of northeast Ukraine that has now been liberated. Torture, rape, executions of civilians, forgetting the bombings of the hospitals and the churches and the apartment buildings, um, forgetting the fact that they're taking orphan kids out of Ukraine and putting them in Russian families and they could keep them in Ukraine, an extended family. These are actually definitions of genocide. So we need to understand this is, this is going on as we talk. And, and what are we doing about it? Well, we're helping the Ukrainians militarily, and I think that's been extremely helpful to the successes we've seen on the battlefield. I think that's all that gets Vladimir Putin to the table, is feeling some pressure on the battlefield. Second, he's got to feel pressure at home. And I don't think they're feeling the squeeze. Uh, I appreciate all you're doing. I, I agree with what Senator Kane said. But, team, we have to realize that this is not working yet. I mean, you look at these numbers. You said that the Russian economy is bleak and deteriorating. That's how I would describe the Ukrainian economy. The Ukrainian economy is down, by best estimates, 40 to 50 percent. 40 to 50 percent their GDP this year. How about the Russian economy? How far is it down this, this year? Well, based on the IMF numbers that we have, the best numbers we have, it's down 8.5% in 2022. Um, you know, our economy is down this year <laughs> uh, a couple of points. So 8.5% versus 40 to 45% or 40 to 50%, uh, the economic comparison is, is to me pretty concerning. And uh, so I'm not sure they're feeling the squeeze in terms of the sanction side. They are starting to feel the battlefield successes by the Ukrainians, and I think that will help get them to the table. We've got to tighten up the squeeze on Russia if, if we all agree that what they're doing are atrocities, and I, I agree with that, and so does the free world. Energy. Windfall earnings this year. In Russia, the revenue that Russia is getting from energy is up 30 percent this year. If I'm wrong, correct me. Is that accurate? The revenue is up 30 percent this year. That revenue is funding the war machine. So my, my questions are many, but Ms. Rosen, we're going to start with you. I'd like to reiterate the importance of Europe and their dependence on, on Russian energy. We've talked about that before. I've given speeches on this on the floor that Europe needs to do more in terms of the energy side. LNG imports uh, are up. That's good. They're twice as high as they were last September right now. And I'm all for the LNG exports from us and from the Middle East to be able to help and from other countries. Uh, and the share of Russian natural gas has gone down. That's good. But what I want to know is the Treasury Department has renewed the General License 8C, which has allowed certain Russian energy transactions to continue without sanction. Is the Treasury Department prepared to sanction entities once that waiver expires in December? I think it's on December 5th. Or does the Department intend to extend that license again? Senator, thank you for the question. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more that we need to be laser-focused on Russia's windfall earnings from energy and deny Russia some of that earning in order to fund its brutal war. 
that's led to this price cap policy amongst the G7, which would seek to keep Russian oil flowing at a lower price in order to deny Russia that revenue. One thing to note, you've mentioned uh, General License uh, 8C. This is the, uh, as you note, uh, uh, method by which purchasers of Russian oil can continue to pay for that oil. The price cap policy in keeping that oil on the market, though at lower prices, requires that those purchasers be able to purchase it. So that is part of the conceived policy here, which would keep the oil on the market, but as we've noted, diminish the revenue. So that is, that's part and parcel of this broader policy. It's different from prior sanctions, which have focused on denying volume rather than revenue. Here, given the critical interconnectivity of Russia's economy with so many others, for commodities, energy in particular, this is part of the policy. So I'm, I'm coming to the end of my questioning time. Let me just be sure I understand what you're saying. So you're saying that General License 8C may well be extended uh, in early December because instead you believe that the price cap is, is more important. That should be um, used instead of the energy sanctions under the 8C license. Is that what you're saying? Senator, I'm not in the position to forecast exactly what will happen with this or other general licenses. Nevertheless, I would emphasize here that in order for the price cap policy to successfully deprive Russia of revenue by pushing down the price, yeah. there must be a means to pay for it. Let me ask you about the price cap. Have you set a, a price yet for the price cap? Senator, yes that no? process has, excuse me. Yes or no? The process has begun to set the price. Have you set a price yet? The process yes or no? has currently begun in order to set that price. Have you set a price yet? Yes or no? The process has begun, Senator. I, Have you set a price cap yet, yes or no? We are in the process, Senator, of doing so. You won't say no. Why won't you say no? You haven't set a price yet. Senator, I appreciate your question, but we have begun this process with the G7 partners here and the price okay. cap coalition. So the answer is no. You've acknowledged that, correct? Senator, I appreciate your question. We have begun this process and fully intend to do Chairman, so. Maybe, maybe you can follow up on that. My, my time's the, the answer is no. Thank you. Because they have not uh, established it yet. They're in the process of establishing yeah, so just say, it. So just if you ask no. right now, what is the price cap? There is no price cap to give you, but they're in the process of establishing it. That's yeah. what I take so, away from the answer. I think General Elections 8C is, is more effective. Um, I understand what you're trying to do with the price cap. I think going against market forces is very difficult to do. I think there's some practicality issues there. Um, so my hope is that we will not extend that general license 8C and that we'll continue to do what we can to try to truly squeeze Russia on the economic side. And that has to be through energy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Ms. Rosenberg, for decades Iran has used Russia to evade sanctions. Recently we've seen that situation reversed, with Russia using Iran as a hub to evade our sanctions in response to Putin's further aggression against Ukraine. I'm specifically concerned about Iran supplying Russia with weapons. The Iranian regime has been supplying Putin with drones that threaten to stall the enormous progress that our Ukrainian allies have been making retaking their territory. Now, the Biden administration has sanctioned some of the Iranian drone manufacturers and the transportation companies, and that was certainly a good start. But it hasn't worked. Iran continues to supply these and other weapons. Now, I believe one of the reasons that it hasn't worked is because you've stopped short of targeting the Iranian banks, including the Iranian Central Bank, that enable these sales with the same powerful authorities you've used elsewhere. Why hasn't the Biden administration imposed additional sanctions on Iranian banks involved 
in the supply of weapons to Russia? Senator, thank you for your question. It is particularly horrifying and egregious when Russia is able to use uh, uh, entities and individuals to supply its military equipment, its materiel, uh, in violation of sanctions. In the instance you were talking about from earlier this month where we designated Iranian entities supplying drones to Russia, that is an, uh, an example of Russia's evasion. They were supplying to a designated entity. And we are looking for every opportunity to go after nodes in a network of procurement that Russian designated individuals are using to seek materiel and technology to field its battlefield equipment. So, Ms. Rosenberg, I... I'm a little dismayed. We just, every word you said was non-responsive to my question. My question was, why hasn't the Biden administration imposed additional sanctions on Iranian banks involved in the supply of weapons to Russia? So let me try it again. Senator, we're looking for good opportunities and the relevant um, uh, intelligence and information to substantiate packages to go after uh, sub, uh, evasion networks, including in, with respect to Iran. So I, I take your point and appreciate this one. I'd be happy to continue to cont talking with you and your staff as we put together the packages to do so. This is a priority for us, looking for Iranian and North Korean supplying of Russian uh, material. Okay, let's take that answer at face value. Do you commit to this committee to maintaining powerful secondary sanctions on Iranian banks, and especially the Iranian Central Bank, for their role in supplying weapons to Russia, even if there's another nuclear deal? Thank you for the question. I can commit to this committee to powerfully imposing and enforcing sanctions on any evasionary network, Iranian or otherwise that supplies Russia with military equipment to fund this brutal war. How about that funds it, like the Iranian Central Bank? Funding, facilitation of financial or material means, those are all priorities across the administration. But you haven't done it yet. We have gone after a variety of evasionary networks. But not the banks. We have named uh, financial nodes in different instances, uh, and furthermore, Companies acting as financial cutouts, Russians unfortunately are best in class at evading and creating okay, front at companies. At the end of the day, it's not complicated. We know the banks are doing this, so it's not best in class evasion. They're doing it openly and brazenly. And the question is, does the Biden administration have the political willingness to sanction them, or is the Iran deal that is such a holy grail for this White House that they're willing to look a blind eye while the Iranian banks fund weapons that are being used by Putin to kill Ukrainians right now in the midst of the invasion? Senator, I think we share the political commitment and uh, intensity of focus with uh, many of the members of this committee and of Congress to go after evasionary individuals and networks and entities wherever they may be located that are okay, Let's change Russia's the topic war. for a second and let's go to another aspect of, that contributed to the war in Ukraine. Uh, which is Nord Stream 2 and actually Nord Stream 1. As you know, I authored legislation sanctioning Nord Stream 2. It stopped the construction of Nord Stream 2 until President Biden waived those sanctions, which allowed Putin to complete the pipeline and cause the invasion of Ukraine. Right now, it appears both of those pipelines have been bombed or destroyed or sabotaged in some way. Um, 
that sabotage was carried out either by the United States, by Russia, or by, by some third party. Uh, I assume you're not going to tell this administration if it was the Biden administration that, that uh, blew up those pipelines. I'd be happy to defer to my, uh, to my colleague from the State Department. Those authorities for uh, Nord Stream 2 rest with the State Department. So, Senator, I, we've said it's apparent sabotage. There are investigations happening in Europe. We'll see what the investigations turn up. So does that mean you're not going to tell us if it was the Biden administration? Um, Senator, I, I think even the question poses a premise that is impossible to answer in an effective way. I mean, you can answer a, yes a, or no. Let, let me just ask this because my time has expired. Let me ask a final question to Ms. Rosenberg. I think the pipelines being out of commission is good for the United States and good for Europe. Would you agree it would have been much better to stop those pipelines using our sanction authority, which had been successful, rather than what we have now, which is an environmental disaster due to the sabotage? Would you agree that sanctions would have been a much more effective way to do this? Senator, to the point of European energy security and denying Russia uh, economic advantage and opportunity and the opportunity to uh, engage in um, uh, uh, a manipulation uh, for Europe on the end of the pipeline, I think there's a, there's a variety of different ways, and we, I appreciate the collaboration we've had with this committee and with co and Congress in general in addressing those key priorities. I think uh, more broadly on uh, the sanctions versus our diplomacy, our energy supply relationships, it's the, it's the combination of all of them that can best advance our purposes. Thank you. It Senator is amazing Coons. you're not willing to answer that question. Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'd like to thank our two witnesses today for your um, engagement in implementing uh, the Biden administration's uh, global leadership uh, in pulling together our allies, uh, not just in Western Europe, but around the world, uh, in imposing real costs on uh, Putin and Putin's Russia for their brutal invasion of Ukraine. Um, I, forgive me, I was at another hearing. Uh, the Judiciary Committee is currently conducting a hearing on uh, how to hold accountable um, those Russians who are committing war crimes, um, atrocities uh, against Ukrainians. So I may have missed the exchange on this particular point. Are there additional economic sanctions that you are urging that we support or authorize or that the administration's considering um, that would impose significant and effective additional costs on Russia? And if so, what are they? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, there's two main themes that I uh, would like to address in answering your question. The first is a continuation of many of the sanctions on uh, targeting financial institutions and military entities or military industrial supply chains. That's critical in order to deny Russia revenue to fund its brutal war. Not only the U.S. imposition and enforcement of those measures, but also the parallel implementation and enforcement by our colleagues and counterparts in Europe and other jurisdictions that have uh, parallel measures. We have an opportunity for them to match us in certain of our measures and likewise. Great. Um, should we be considering revoking Russia's membership in institutions like the IMF or the World Bank? Um, that would be a, a significant and a bold step. I'd be interested in hearing your opinions on whether you know, further removing them from some of these multilateral international financial institutions would have some positive impact. Ms. Rosenberg and then Mr. O'Brien, if you may. Thank you for the question, Senator. This, uh, this question is relevant not just for financial institutions, but uh, other multilateral bodies in which Russia has membership. The 
principle that, um, if I may, the administration has sought to consider when evaluating each of these is uh, that Russia should be not denied the opportunity for decision-making and leadership in forums where that is uh, unacceptable for it to continue to, to, to play a leadership role. The bylaws of different organizations and institutions uh, create different pathways here, whether excluding Russia entirely or depriving it of leadership and decision-making. So it, it's different from institution to institution or multilateral body, but we're committed to uh, the principle that Russia should not be in the position to inform significant decision making or hold a veto over policy that other members and uh, would seek to advance. Let me ask you one more question briefly, and then I'll turn to Mr. O'Brien for both. Um, is Treasury looking seriously at using um, Russian asset seizures as a way to fund reconstruction efforts in Ukraine? Thank you for that question. This is a, a a major priority uh, for this administration. I know many on the uh, here on the Hill are also focused on this, and I expect that uh, some of our Department of Justice colleagues um, may have had the chance to share with you some of their preliminary thinking on this matter. Uh, the administration did send a um, uh, suggested legislation up to the Hill earlier this year. It was not included in a supplementary uh, legislative package. But this is an area we'd like to focus on further with all of you. The concept of restitution here is key for many of us. The mode and mechanism uh, uh, requires some detailed work, including with our allies. Mr. O'Brien, if you might, um, I'd be interested in your views on the consequences for our relationships uh, for us to both impose additional secondary sanctions or enforce secondary sanctions against nations that we otherwise uh, have good relationships with. Uh, for their ongoing uh, business dealings with Russia, um, just hypothetically, uh, Turkey, uh, the UAE, uh, India, uh, what would the consequences be of our trying to actually carry out the things Ms. Rosenberg's talking about, driving the Russians out of positions of leadership and responsibility in multilateral financial institutions, actually enforcing secondary sanctions, seizing assets, and using them for reconstruction? Well, I think the point, Senator, is we have many tools to get countries into compliance with sanctions. Many of the countries actually want to be part of the rule-abiding club or at least have access to our economies. And that gives us enormous leverage through the, the prospect of financial sanctions, designations, export controls, et cetera. So in each of those situations, and I'd say in a number of other countries that have different relationships with Russia, we find ourselves in active conversations about how they can retool their economies to not be completely dependent on Russia, how they can um, develop the mechanisms needed to enforce the sanctions and comply with them. And then throughout that process, while we're working with governments, the um, private sectors are well aware of what will make them vulnerable to sanctions. So we do see, and then I'll close with this point, as we mentioned in a particular co uh, conversation earlier, Sometimes if we designate the Russian counterparty, then that causes the uh, institutions in some of those countries to say they can no longer continue working in an area. So we don't necessarily have to employ these tools against the friendly countries, but we're able to achieve the same result in other ways. Well, thank you. I'd like to thank you both uh, for your testimony and for your work uh, and to recognize the administration's success so far in uh, pulling together a very wide range of very disparate uh, partners um, but also urge you to, to sharpen and focus this work because of the urgency of 
uh, imposing greater costs uh, on Putin's Russia for their aggression in Ukraine. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, the uh, record for this hearing will remain open to the close of business tomorrow. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.